in whom we have the redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Of course, these verses 14 through 18 of Colossians 1 have been setting forth the preeminence of Christ in all things. His preeminence in the old creation is the unique image of the invisible God manifesting the attributes of God to mankind as the firstborn of the creation, occupying that place of privilege and preeminence, the heir of all things, as the pre-existent eternal Son of God, creating all, maintaining all in himself, by himself, and unto himself for his own glory, preeminent in the old creation, setting forth Christ as preeminent in the new creation, as the Redeemer, by his own blood, satisfying God's justice, ransoming guilty sinners, canceling the legal indictment against sinful men. As the head of his body, the church, organically uniting the whole company of the redeemed, sustaining them, nourishing them, and authoritatively ruling them and guiding them and judging them and defending them. As the firstborn from the dead, the first to be raised in glory, the pattern, the pledge, the purchase of the resurrection of the redeemed, the one who has the power over death and the right of resurrection. As the beginning, the source of every grace and blessing, the inauguration of the new creation, the beginning of the restoration of all things in the coming of the kingdom, Christ preeminent in the new creation. We looked at the relationship of the old creation and the new creation and his preeminence, that this wasn't merely a list but an order in effect, that Christ was constituted preeminent in the old creation, that though that old creation would be bound in corruption after the fall, it would have yet a natural yearning to become subject to the Son of God when he would come incarnate at the restoration of all things, so that the glory due to the Lord from the old creation would not be lost by sin, but would be resolved into the glory obtained under the new, when the original creation would become subject to Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. And we saw that behind all of these things, why Christ had each of these uh, unique <coughs> titles and positions covering everything, was that he might be preeminent in everything, that he might become the first in all things. The purpose of Christ being the firstborn in the old and new creation, and the beginning in the old and new creation, and the head of his body, the church, the purpose behind the decree and counsel of the triune God, placing all of these things in the hands of, of, of the eternal Son, was that he might be preeminent in all things. And so, the history of the world 
even before the foundation of the world, was ordered that the eternal Son might become preeminent. But we're not done with this subject just yet, because we're going to move one step further in the sort of chain of logical inquiry to reveal even more of the glory of the eternal Son. We've seen this list of the honors with which Christ has been marked and seen the relationship of them, and we asked the question, why were these things given to Christ? And we answered it. It was that He might become preeminent in all things. But you see, we can ask another question. Why should it be arranged that Christ should become preeminent in all things? Is there any answer to that question? And the Apostle himself answers it for us. Yes, there is. He gives it in the next verse. And it comes sort of in two points. Christ was given this preeminence because it pleased God that all the fullness should dwell in him, and it pleased God to reconcile all things by him. And so for these connected reasons, it was therefore arranged and decreed that the course of history would be set in such a way that Christ should have the preeminence in all things, because... It pleased God for all the fullness to dwell in Him and to reconcile all things by Him. That's what we're going to look at today. In fact, the the first part of that, for it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. This verse, uh, verse 19, is not without its translational difficulties, chief of which is the fact that the word, as you have in your AV, the Father, is not in the text, any text. nor as I would translate it, because it pleased God that in him should all the fullness dwell. God the Father is not in any text. Uh, in, in fact, you could read it, and many translations today, and in fact the alternate reading in my Bible, which I doubt is the original alternate reading, is, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, where fullness becomes the subject instead of the object. Instead of God being pleased that the fullness should dwell in him, fullness becomes the subject of was pleased, the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. And there are those who who uh, take it that way, changes the meaning somewhat, it's kind of a funny thing to say. Uh, but most commentators believe that we have basically a, a suggested or an implied subject being God based on the context, and, and that's how I'm going to take it. Uh, it's certainly true, and I think it is the, the true meaning of this verse, if it is a somewhat uh, somewhat paraphrased uh, rendering, because it pleased God that in him should all the fullness should dwell. Now, we have actually two things stated in this verse, don't we? We have it, it stated that all the fullness dwelt in Christ. And we also have it stated that it pleased God for this to be so. So we're going to look at those two things. First, what does it mean that all the fullness dwelt in Christ? The fullness of what? What is this fullness? Uh, This word fullness uh, in this kind of usage is passive. It's the state of fullness, a full capacity, a complete amount to which nothing can be added. We've talked about it before. It's that picture. If you had a picture of a cup, it would be the cup all the way filled up to the very top so that you couldn't put even a single drop more without it overflowing. It's absolute, total capacity. Stuffed full. It's that kind of fullness. This word, this concept, is used by Paul some 12 other times, but they're really of little help because they're contextually controlled. The fullness of this, the fullness of that, 
doesn't really say anything here. The only clue we have to this chapter, other than the context, is Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul is warning them, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of man, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And that's the only clue we have as to what, other than the context, as to what fullness might be meant here, the only immediate uh, clue, perhaps the fullness of the Godhead. Could this be our fullness? Another text I'd like to take you to, it's Psalm 68. This is a psalm about God, about the glory of God, and the power of God, and the things that God has done. And it is a messianic psalm as well, as we will see shortly. <clears throat> Starts out, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away, as wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of the Lord. It's a warning about the, 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 the call to God to scatter his enemies. There's a lot of that in this psalm, especially towards the end, we won't get there. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God. Sing praises to His name. Extol Him that rides upon the heavens by His name, Yah, and rejoice before Him. So the righteous don't have anything to be afraid of. God's going to act in their behalf. And then He talks about uh, the mercies of God. A father of the fatherless, a judge of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those which are bound in chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. It's the mercies of God, the things he does for the suffering and the those who have no power of their own, orphans, widows, the poor, this the, the lonely. The bound. O God, when thou went forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, the earth shook. The heavens dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, didst send plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Thy congregation has dwelt therein. Thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Kings of armies did flee apace. And she that tarried at home divided the spoil. Though ye've lain among the pots, ye shall be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as the snow and salmon. You see, this is all about the, how God delivered. Let me get to this. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan. A high hill as the hill of Bashan. Why do you leap, you high hills? This is the hill in which God is pleased to dwell. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. Before we go on, let me just mention this verse 16. The construction is exactly, in the, in the, in the uh, Greek translation, the construction is just the same as in our text. It pleased God to dwell in this hill, which he will dwell in forever. Thou, then verse 18, this should sound familiar if you know your New Testament. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us 
loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Verse 18 is cited in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, as a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Who is he that ascendeth? He that descendeth. Uh, arguing from the from the language of, of ascent, that in order to ascend, one first has to descend. And, uh, well, well, we'll turn there, in fact. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 8. He says, uh, Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and he goes through the various offices. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. This is, this, this, this is about Jesus. He descended, then he ascended, leading captivity captive, that's delivering those who were captive, to give gifts to men. He's given to every man according to the grace of Christ. But this is all connected with the place in which God is pleased to dwell. It's, it's this simple, basically. The temp- and because this is about the temple in, in, in uh, Psalm 68. The temple is the dwelling place of God, right? Everybody sees that? But it says here that this hill is one in which the Lord will dwell forever. Did God dwell in the temple in Jerusalem forever? He didn't, did he? But according to the New Testament... This isn't the temple that we're supposed to see, this physical temple. Jesus, incarnate, is the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But Jesus spoke of the temple of his body. Furthermore, what was the purpose of the temple? Of course, it was the dwelling place of God, is the dwelling place of God, so Jesus then is the dwelling place of God, the place in which the Lord is pleased to dwell, according to verse 16 of Psalm 68, in which the Lord will dwell forever. And at the temple, that was the place where, where men went to obtain the forgiveness of sin ritually and to obtain, if you will, gifts of God, the gift of forgiveness of salvation. Jesus is the temple. In fact, he's the sacrifice in the temple. In fact, he's the priest making the sacrifice, and he's the sacrifice, and he's the temple. He's the whole sacrificial system. What was he doing? Stretched out upon the cross. He was dying for our sins, conquering sin and death. He descended. He became man. He became the temple. God dwelt in Jesus Christ, the historical person, he offered the sacrifice, he propitiated God, and then he ascended, leading captivity captive, and he became the Lord on high, the chief cornerstone, the head of the body, and he received gifts for men, and he gave them. Every one of us has received the gift according to the measure, the grace of Christ. Thou hast received gifts for men that the Lord God might dwell among them. Our question is, what does it mean that all the fullness was pleased to dwell in Christ? And, And is it related to the fullness of the Godhead? And I think it is. 
but there's two aspects to it, which we'll get to. Let me make one comment. Uh, this text in verse uh, 19, as opposed to verse uh, 9 of chapter 2, this text refers, based on the tense of the verb, to the historic Jesus. It's, it's the question of Jesus as he was when he came. Not Jesus as he is exalted or as he is now. That's the next text in chapter 2, verse 9. This text is about looking at Jesus in his incarnation, and it is saying that the fullness of God dwelt in him. And on that account, every gift of grace dwelt in him as well and was given to men. He was the forgiver of sins. Remember how revolutionary, how startling, how in fact uh, uh, astonished the Jews were and the Pharisees when he said to one, your sins are forgiven you. They said, wait a second. Who is this person that can forgive sins? What are you doing telling, saying your sins are forgiven you? How can you do that? It was revolutionary for, for, um, for this man to say, your, your sins are forgiven you. And the reason he could say that is because God forgives sins, and, and God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ, in his incarnation. If the fullness of God dwells in you, you can forgive sin. John chapter 1, verse 14 through 16 speaks of this as well, the incarnation of Jesus. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for He was before me. And of His fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. See, John says that when the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, he had a fullness in him. Grace. We've received. All we have received of his fullness. Grace for grace. Now, what exactly does it mean that the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus? It means, first of all, that all that is divine was in Jesus. Every attribute, every power of divinity, the fullness of God, as one commentator puts it, the plentitude of the Godhead. It wasn't, in other words, the divinity, you see, wasn't parceled out a little bit to this person, a little bit to that person, a little bit to the tree, a little bit to the rock, a little bit to Jesus, a little bit to you. It wasn't like that. All the fullness dwelt in Him. It also means that the fullness of grace was in Him and the gifts given to men, because he had the fullness of the Godhead, then in him was found all grace and mercy and love and truth. Uh, it's put in Colossians 2.3. And of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, he's got the fullness. The fullness of grace resides in Christ. <clears throat> I want to give you a, an excerpt uh, from a man named John Eady, which I think uh, explains this in a way, inimitable. Whatever is needed to save a fallen world and to restore harmony to the universe is treasured up in him. It was indispensable that the law should be magnified while its violators were forgiven, lest the circuit of divine jurisdiction should be narrowed or its influence counteracted. And there is a fullness of merit in the sufferings of Jesus, 
which is set an imperishable luster on the nature and government of God. That copious variety of gifts connected with the Christian economy has its source in Jesus. Knowledge and faith, pardon and life, purity and hope, comfort and strength, all that quickens and all that sustains, each in its place and connection. And there is all fullness, abundance of blessing, of every species of blessing in proper time and order. As the bounties of providence are scattered around us with rich munificence and consist not of one kind of gift, which might become fatal in its monotony, but of an immense variety, so the blessings which spring out of this fullness are not only vast in number and special in adaptation, but in their mutual relations and dependence they supply every necessity and fill the entire nature with increasing satisfaction and delight. The impartation of knowledge though it grew to the riches of the full assurance of understanding, could not minister to every want by itself, nor could yet the pardon of sin severed from the benefits which flow from it. Therefore there is secured for us peace as well as enlightenment, renovation along with forgiveness. Condition and character are equally changed. The tear of penitence glistens in the radiance of spiritual joy, and the germs of perfection engrafted now are destined forever to mature and expand. It goes on like this. In short, every grace, as it is needed and when it is needed, in every variety of phase and operation, every grace either to nurse the babe or sustain the perfect man, to excite the new life or to foster it, to give pardon in the sense of it, faith in the full assurance of it, purity in the felt possession of it, every blessing in short, for health or sickness, for duty or trial, for life or death, for body or soul, for heaven or earth, for time or eternity, is wrapped up in that fullness which dwells in Christ. End of quote. Blessed be the Lord, says the psalmist, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. When it says it dwelt in him, this is a, this is a word that means to take up residence. It's not a transient thing. The incarnation was not a Motel 6 for God. Okay? It's permanent. Uh, and of course, speaking of the eternal Son, it was from eternity. The Son always had the fullness. But looking at the historical person, Jesus, God and man united, he was born. He came into the world. He had a beginning, an incarnation. And it came and dwelt in him, this fullness. But it wasn't going to move on. It was permanently settled. So all divinity was in the incarnate Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, and every grace. He was and is the river of life. The one that drinks and eats of him has eternal life. Now, how did this come about? It says it pleased God, God's pleasure. First of all, that which is God's pleasure comes to pass, period. Secondly, this is the end of our chain of reasoning. We can't go beyond this. You see, we said, why, why was, we said, Christ had all these honors. Why? Because he had to become the preeminent one. Why? Because all the fullness was, dwelt in him. Why? Because it pleased God. And that's where we have to stop. It's the end of knowledge. Why did it please God? Well, you can't answer that. It's simply an astounding thing. It's like, it's like what it's about election in Ephesians 1.5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did God elect? According to the good pleasure of his will. It was his pleasure. Why did all the fullness dwell in Jesus Christ? Because it pleased God. See, it's a mystery at that point. But it's not only an inexplainable thing, it's an unassailable thing. It's powerful, it's certain, there's no question as to whether the fullness of grace dwelt in Jesus. It did. 
It pleased God for it to be so. So we've seen this then. Jesus Christ was the firstborn of the old creation. He was the firstborn of the new creation. This was so arranged that he might have the preeminence in all things, whether the things of the old creation or the things of the new. And this was to be so arranged because Jesus had all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him. Do you understand this? It had to be arranged that way that Jesus would have the preeminence, because he had the fullness. The fullness demands this fact of the preeminence. What more inconceivably unjust thing than for this man, uh, Jesus Christ, to have all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him, and be second, be subject, be diminished in something, share his glory. Impossible. And so the new creation was so arranged that he might become preeminent when he came. For to who else could this preeminence rightly have been given? It had to be he that would suffer and die and thereby be firstborn and head, because he had the fullness and the grace to impart. But now when we ask why did the fullness dwell in him, we have to stop. It pleased God. A couple of words of application. First of all, from it pleased God, uh, we have a great deal of revelation in our Bibles about the causes of things and the reasons for things, and about truth, and law, and promise, and so forth. And the scriptures are very logical, and we're encouraged to trace things out. But eventually, whatever thing we're looking at, we eventually come to a dead end. It pleased God. Well, I say a dead end. It's not really a dead end. It looks like a dead end. I think it's probably something more like when men first realized that the sky was not a uh, canopy. People used to think that. It was like it was like the ground, you know, that's solid, and, and there's rock on the ground and that sort of thing. He used to think that about the sky, too, that it was like a, a solid thing. And then there were little things, you know, that you could, if you went up high enough, you'd touch it. And there were the stars there and that sort of thing. I think it was probably something like the revelation that, uh, the, the shock and the, uh, and the wonder uh, and the mystery when men first realized that it wasn't, it wasn't solid. It just went on and on and on and on. When they first discovered the depths of the universe. It's not a dead end, the pleasure of God. It's mysterious. It's wonderful. It's inexplainable. It's boundless. The good pleasure of God takes us right to the heart of God, to the center of God. It's not a fence around God. It's a revelation of the mystery of God. And it's a comforting truth. God is good. And the pleasure of God is truly the good pleasure of God. It's not arbitrary or capricious like some pagan God. It's consistent with all that we know of God. It's comforting because it's something in which we can rest. We don't have to run around wondering if the wrong thing has happened. You know how people are about that? They get terribly concerned about something that's happened. Wonder if it's the wrong thing and so the course of history will forever be altered to this terrible thing and oh, they get all excited. It's not like that. In the sense of God's law, you could say that. And there are consequences to the violation of God's law. But not in the final sense. This is a rock. This is a secure place. It is a warning indeed not to pry into the secret things of God. But I don't think it's there as a warning primarily. Rather, I think it's a welcome into the the fabulous, wonderful place of God's will. It's not there for terror, but for us to marvel at the pleasure of God. Now, this fullness dwelling in Jesus Christ is a vital truth. It's vital because it tells us that Jesus Christ is fully God and has the fullness of divinity, and only He has it. And He has it all. 
That's important. It strikes at the heart of these false teachers who downgraded Christ. It strikes at the heart of every false Christ-denying religion from all the extremes, whether it's the Islamic on the one side, there's one God and Allah is God and Muhammad is his prophet, denying any place to the to, to, to triunity of God, denies that all the way to the Eastern religion that says... <laughs> All is God, and God is all. You're God, I'm God, the rock is God, the tree is God, everything's God, and God is everything. He says, no, no, Jesus is where the, all the fullness dwells. See, the Son of God was not a God who became a man and then returned to being God. Nor was He like the pagan gods who pretended to be men. Jesus was a union of the divine nature and the human nature in one person. And this man, Jesus, had the fullness of God dwelling in him. He was God, he is God, he will always be God. But in this context, we're emphasizing the fullness of grace that is in him because he has that fullness of the Godhead in him. He's the fountain, he's the source. He had to become preeminent because every good thing dwells in him. And he richly pours out those blessings upon his own. I say this is an application because it points us to him in need. What is your need? Salvation? Cleansing from sin, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Is it guilt of conscience? It's He blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, nailing it to His cross. Is your need eternal life? Jesus said to the woman at the well that if you drink the water that He has, you'll never die. He says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have eternal life. Is your need guidance or protection? He's the great shepherd, the king of kings. His words are truth. Material needs, seek ye first the kingdom of God, all this will be added unto you. Jesus has the fullness dwelling in him. And of him we have all received grace for grace. Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men. Yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Blessed be Jesus Christ, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. <laughs>